1: Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join me today, whether you are a first-time wrong thinker or a long-time experienced pro at wrong think. Glad you could be part of the show. Got a lot to talk about today. Our program brought to you in part by Monticello College, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also by Pure Light and HSL Ammo. I've got a link to every one of these sponsors in today's show notes, which you can find at the com. I would welcome you to... Reach out to them, especially if you need their product or service, but also just to tell them thanks. Thank you for sponsoring the show. Thanks for making this a possibility. So I've got some fun stuff to talk about today. Among the things we'll talk about is whether we have the will to continue as a free society. I also want to talk a little bit about the invention of uh, media experts and politicians of the, uh, the latest uh, extremism uh, threat that apparently is the most important thing facing our country. Never mind the out-of-control spending. Never mind the uh, military adventurism elsewhere. Never mind the ongoing loss of freedoms and out-of-control growth of government. No, no, no. It's the threat of white supremacist extremism that really should be on our minds. Or so says the uh, chattering class. We'll talk more about that coming up in a few moments. We'll talk a little bit about uh, whether or not we censor ourselves when engaging in discourse with others. I'll admit it, I was out and around this weekend and talking with uh, my brother in law. And I, a couple of times, caught myself looking around and, uh, you know, I want to say something. And it's not because I wanted to say something horribly offensive. But I thought, you know, I don't really know what's horribly offensive these days anymore or not. Things that were totally acceptable, even loved by society just a few weeks ago, were now told, oh, those things are irredeemably offensive they need to be removed from society dr seuss i'm looking your way i'm yeah i'm not sure <laughs> what is safe and what isn't anymore and i'm pretty sure i'm not alone in this as well so these are just just a few of the topics i'm going to get to i want to start with something a little bit personal and i don't know if i'm sharing this just for my benefit or if there's someone who really needs to hear this but I have been looking over some of my memories that have been popping up on Facebook, and I'm marveling that it was a little over 10 years ago that uh, I experienced my very first bout of being downsized, and it's not a very fun experience. It was one of those instances where I had showed up for work, I was was actually waiting to go on the air, and saw, you know, upper management come in, and I could just see from the look on our operations manager's face, I mean, he looks stressed. And he came in with the general manager, and they they took my uh, morning show co-host, and, and uh, the GM went to meet with her, and um, I said, hey, uh, you look pretty sad, kind of serious. Is, is there a problem? And he's just shaking his head, going, it's not good. And I thought, holy cow, are they really here to fire me? Sure enough, a few minutes later, it was my turn. <laughs> I got pulled into the office and told, we are going a different direction, blah, 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 reduction in force, blah, blah, blah sign here, here's your check, we'll take your keys, and that was that. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of, you know, being let go from a job, whether it was, you know, outright fired or just, you know, the more gentle, we're downsizing you, but that uh, that rush of cold that kind of washes over you when you get really bad news, that's a real thing. You know, when people, my blood ran chill, (laughs) I totally understand what they're talking about. That's what it felt like. And that that momentary sense of, holy cow, everything just changed, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and especially the walk to your car, right? The walk of shame, carrying your box of whatever it was you had there at the office. You do a lot of thinking. Even, it doesn't matter how far away you park. You, you have some time to think. And I remember just going, what am I going to do? What can I possibly do? And I just want to check in 10 years down the road this is this is what i saw this is the the thing that popped up on my uh facebook feed this morning and it's just a simple one sentence update that i posted 10 years ago that said my pink slip last week was a huge blessing cleverly disguised as a minor setback now i want to tell you i did not always feel that way in fact for you know the largest portion of my working years I was, you know, pretty much like, well, man, you know, there's only one thing I know how to do, and that's radio. You know, I'll put these headphones on and sit behind a microphone, and that's what I'm going to do. That was the first time in my life I ever had to consider whether or not I was going to continue doing radio. I think I'd been doing it for about 26 years at the time, and felt like that was a pretty good run, but I didn't really know what the next step was going to be, and as as I walked to my car, even though I had just lost my job and was feeling, you know, a, a little uh, shaken by it. I also had this incredible sense of peace. And I know, you know, the armchair psychologists are going to say, well, Brian, that was just denial. You know, you hadn't accepted reality. You were still fighting, you know, repressing on all cylinders. Maybe that's the case. But I think there was something different that had happened. And this is the part I want to share with you, because I know there are people who are struggling with um you know, adjusting to either losing their jobs or being cut way back in terms of how much work they can do. Some people have been canceled simply because they spoke out. And I don't mean they were out there, you know, writing the Capitol or anything like that. They just simply spoke out in a way that their employer didn't consider sufficiently woke. And so then they find themselves looking for work. That was the first time in my life I ever had to stop and consider, am I something more than just a radio guy. And as I, well, you know, I'm just going to tell you right up. I, I, my first instinct was I turned to God and I just said, okay, I believe things happen for a reason. And if there's a purpose behind this, I'm anxious to learn what that is. And I'm also willing to do whatever it takes, you know, to, to move the direction that I need to go. Can you help me see where I need to be going? And and to, to the credit of, uh, of some very, very dear friends, I did not miss a day of work in the sense that I was out there the next day swinging a hammer, shoveling snow, digging fence post holes. I was doing whatever it took because I couldn't just sit there and wait, you know, for unemployment to kick in or for, you know, opportunity to fall into my lap. I had to stay busy. But the crazy thing about it was for the first time in my life, I was realizing there's more to do here, I can do more than simply radio. Now, look, I'm not uh, I'm not a good construction worker in the sense that I'm not really skilled, but I was willing to do the manual labor and you know, I was toting you know cabinets and stuff up and downstairs and helping remodel apartments and whatnot. But it didn't take very long before opportunities started to come my way, and one of the first ones was a friend contacted me and said, "I know you like to write. Would you like to be a freelance writer and work for us?" And within a very short time. I had a couple of different side gigs, teaching online classes, doing freelance writing. And, and by the way, this is not like, oh, and I just easily slid right in. There was, a, there was a pretty good learning curve in each case, but it was there. The opportunity was there, and I was still able to do things that I loved and, and utilize what, what I consider um, you know, God-given gifts that I've been able to develop over my life in a, in a positive way. And in fact, there came a point where I had so many opportunities coming at me so quickly. And, and this is, I believe, testament um, not only to the goodness of, of my creator, but to, to the great people around me who just, how can we help? What can we do to help you? I was overwhelmed by how much opportunity was coming at me. I, I, was, I was struggling to choose what would be the best way to go. And I know that sounds like, uh, you know, a first world problem, right? Oh, I had so many job offers. I didn't know which one to take. <laughs> I, I don't say it to brag. I just say it to, to point out that's a problem I think everybody should experience at least once when you have so many blessings coming at you that uh, you don't even know how how to react. It's it's like, you know, it's, it's like taking a drink from a fire hose, what was it that unlocked, though, this change in my thinking? Because just a few years prior, a loss of job would have been, well, I better start looking for another radio job somewhere. I don't care where, but I can guarantee, you know, it's it's probably going to be pretty low-paying and may not be the best hours, and you're starting all over at the bottom of the totem pole. Instead, I was realizing, no, there's a lot more that I can and should be doing, and I realized I can reinvent myself, or, you know, uh, expand in different directions than I previous, previously had. What was the secret to this new line of thought? It was a classical liberal arts education. I know, people are like, really? So you read some old books and suddenly you discovered the the key to uh, succeeding? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe maybe not succeeding in the sense that uh, I didn't become a millionaire and I didn't have a best-selling book published immediately, but... I definitely saw myself as being capable of doing something more than just what I had been doing up to that point. And that was a huge turning point for me. And I'm just sharing this with you with, with the understanding. If you are struggling right now, if you are looking for work, you have a lot to offer the world. Think outside the box. You
0: might be surprised at where it could take you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, let's dive right in. I've got some great stuff to
1: share with you today. And one of the things that that came to my mind as I was pulling my show notes together today was with everything that's happened in this last year. It's been kind of hard times for freedom lovers. And in fact, we're, we're looking at, around us and going, wow, <laughs> you know, if, if the, the COVID pandemic wasn't enough, there's been a lot of political intrigue. There's there's just, it's it's pressing in on all sides. And things aren't looking so rosy right now for people who really, truly love freedom and want to perpetuate it. So when I saw this essay from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research, The title is, Do We Still Have the Will to Continue as a Free Society? I thought, okay, let's explore this. Because right now, there's a lot of the the lockdown uh, mandates are ending. Mask mandates are going away. But I'm seeing people, maybe it's out of force of habit. I was out and about this weekend, and uh, mask wearing, it was still almost universal. Most places I went, I was one of the only individuals not wearing a mask, and I'm not saying that to brag. I, I just I just was looking around trying to see how many people are eager to get rid of those masks. And you know what? In my home state of Utah, it's crazy how many people were, were masked up. Virtually everyone. So I think this is a fair question. Do we have the will to continue as a free society? Or have we developed some habits that are going to make it harder to be free? Ethan Yang says, to paraphrase the Soviet dissident and human rights activist Nathan Sharansky, or Nathan Sharansky, What it meant to be a loyal Soviet citizen was to say what you're supposed to say, to read what you're permitted to read, and to vote the way you're supposed to vote, and to know it was all a lie. Now that chilling sentiment, he says, contrasts sharply with what it means to be a citizen of the free world be it in America, Europe, or our liberal democratic friends across the world. Sharansky's line echoes the way in which debate regarding COVID-19 and lockdowns has transpired, primarily in the United States, but certainly across the Western world. Just look at the way Oxford epidemiologist Sunetra Gupta has been treated for critiquing lockdowns, and he's got a nice link to a story about that. He says the other day, I was revisiting former President Trump's Poland speech, which is widely regarded as one of his finest orations. Now, as someone who hasn't been uh, the biggest fan of the former president and his bombastic and often reckless statements, the speech struck me as unexpectedly inspiring. He says, I think what made it great was its existential nature. He spoke about how Poland, a nation that has been torn apart and carved into pieces by war and conquest, always found a way to keep coming back together. In the past hundred years alone, Poland was split in two by Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union leading into World War II. Then after the war, Poland became a Soviet satellite state and its people were once again subject to domination. Trump noted, quote, "...through four decades of communist rule, Poland and the other captive nations of Europe endured a brutal campaign to demolish freedom, your faith, your laws, your history, your identity." Indeed, the very essence of your culture and your humanity. Yet through it all, you never lost that spirit. Your oppressors tried to break you, but Poland could not be broken. End quote. Ethan Yang says the Polish nation survived because of the sheer will of the Polish people to exist as a civilization. A civilization with a proud history and great figures like the astronomer Copernicus and composer Chopin. Chopin, rather. Trump noted that the Polish will to endure was seen as an inspiration for the NATO alliance and the Western world more generally. And he hoped that the free world would continue to have the will to defend itself both militarily and ideologically. He says, although we certainly have our problems, Trump's speech put our civilization in context to the alternatives. Nazi Germany, communism, the illiberal authoritarian regimes of modern-day Russia and China, as well as the repressive regime created under ISIS. When speaking about Western civilization and the free world more generally, Trump noted, quote, We write symphonies. We pursue innovation. We celebrate our ancient heroes, embrace our timeless traditions and customs, and always seek to explore and discover brand new frontiers. We reward brilliance. We strive for excellence and cherish inspiring works of art that honor God. We treasure the rule of law and protect the right to free speech and free expression. End quote. Now, these are some of the hallmarks of Western civilization, its allies and the free society it fostered. And Ethan Yang says, yes, we have our problems, and we should strive to correct them. But the core of what we have is worth defending. This is also what's been taken from us by lockdowns. So America, unlike Poland, is not an ethno-state, nor should nationality have anything to do with being an American. America, as the old saying goes, is an idea. Being an American is not about the color of your skin, the creed of your religion, or any other immutable characteristic. It's about sharing a common commitment to the ideal of freedom, individual autonomy, and our institutions which further these aspirations. He says Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorish included the following excerpt of a speech in his book, which was given to a group of immigrants who just became U.S. citizens. Quote, It seems to me that one thing that's so unusual about the oath you've taken— and the country you've joined is the fact that we are a nation of immigrants. The United States does not have a shared common culture in the classic sense. We do not have many centuries of shared heritage that exist in, say, China or England. Instead, America is largely bound together by ideas. And the truth is, some of those ideas are hard and entail real challenges to us. End quote. Now, Ethan Yang says some of those difficult ideas include upholding a government of, by, and for the people. A liberal democracy centered around self-government requires many virtues. Personal responsibility is chief amongst them. Upholding core liberties like free speech and due process, which matter most not when it's easiest to do so, but when it's hard. We strive to treat each other with respect and be tolerant of different views. As John Milton articulated in the 17th century, let her, meaning truth, and falsehood, grapple. Whoever knew truth to be put to the worse in a free and open encounter. And Ethan Yang says, finally, among many other values, we treasure and uphold the rule of law, not a single personality or the will of the mob. Such values were given to us by our intellectual forefathers such as Aristotle, Tocqueville, and Bastiat. America as a civilization is not tied to an ethnic group but a shared experience in self-government and the maintenance of liberty. The moment those ideas are eschewed, so too is our civilization. So America under lockdown may be the most critical threat the nation has ever seen. He says it's long been known that America's size and location combined with its military might leaves it almost impervious to conquest. Furthermore, if occupied by a foreign power, it's likely that much like Poland, the American people would fight to reclaim their country. But what happens when subjugation is imposed by our own leaders to the approval of many of our fellow citizens? Now, that's a true threat. Stacey Rudin noted that the um, United States and much of the Western world copied China on virus control. The American Institute for Economic Research has noted time and again how lockdowns are an unprecedented policy with no proof to be found in history for their efficacy. Yet intellectuals across the world continue to hint at their admiration for the authoritarian Chinese response and their distrust in the institutions of liberal democracy to keep us safe. Lord Sumption writes for the, for the Telegraph rather when he notes that aside from all the business closures and personal damage lockdowns have caused, our institutions of democracy will be the biggest loss. Two weeks to flatten the curve is now approaching a year under lockdown. Some politicians are pushing the usage of masks and social distancing policies well into the next year. What started out as an experiment in public health policy is now unraveling what it means to live in a free society. And Trump, in his Poland speech, said, the West became great not because of paperwork and regulations, but because people were allowed to chase their dreams and pursue their destinies. He said Americans, Poles, and the nations of Europe value individual freedom and sovereignty, we must work together to confront forces whether they come from inside or out from the south or the east to confront these forces and to undermine our to undermine these values and to erase the bonds of culture faith and tradition that make us who we are. Trump said if le- left unchecked rather these forces will undermine our courage sap our spirit and weaken our will to defend ourselves and our societies. That does ring kind of true. We'll come back to this just the other
0: side of the break. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right. Welcome back to the show.
1: I'm sharing with you an excellent article from Ethan Yang for the American Institute for Economic Research. That's AIER.org. Again, I strongly suggest if you're interested in some solid information, landing in your email inbox every single day, AIER.org is a great resource. Just subscribe, they'll send it right to you and you can take your choice. This has become one of my favorite go-to sources especially for information on COVID and on lockdowns and and on uh, not it's it's not just, you know, the anti-mask, you know, latest but real analysis of what is the economic damage? What are the costs that we're incurring in terms of our freedoms in terms of economically based on these lockdown policies. And they don't do this on a partisan basis. This is not uh, all things Republican. It's, It's a very balanced approach, but it's also very contrary to much of the mainstream media narrative, which is so overwhelmingly slanted towards masks, toward lockdowns, toward more government power and away from freedom, as to make one wonder whether we still have the will to continue as a free society. That's the name of this article, and again, it is in, in the show notes, which you'll find at the thebryanhideshow.com. Ethan Yang says, today America and Europe find themselves under brutal lockdown measures that, in addition to not actually stopping the virus, have completely subdued our societies economically, socially, culturally, and spiritually. Although many people support lockdowns because they believe they will help control the virus, others genuinely see them as a means to fundamentally change American society out of spite for our individualistic values. Look no further than the common narrative that selfish Americans won't wear their masks and that's why the virus is spreading. Not only are masks ineffective at stopping COVID-19 in the way they're advertised, but the United States actually has some of the highest reported mask-wearing rates in North America and Europe. An article published by Forbes warned against doing your own research when it comes to COVID-19 and parroted the tired, listen to the experts line. Not only is this attack on the very notion of the scientific method as well as an informed citizenry, but such a strategy would have clearly led us down the road to technocracy and a misinformed one at that. Ethan Yang says such uninformed hysteria around COVID sounds less like a concern for stopping the virus and more of a cultural wedge against traditional American ideas of individual liberty. Sadly, he says, it seems that many members of the public are either afraid or apathetic when it comes to preserving and reclaiming the free society that is our birthright. Poland is a shining example of a raw desire to exist as a coherent civilization after being dismembered time and time again. Today, that same question exists for America and the rest of the Western world more generally. And so he asks, Do we have the will to continue to exist as a free and polite society, steeped in the ideas of liberty, reason, and justice? Or have we succumbed to a tragic case of civilizational fatigue, where we're now disinterested in holding on to what we used to be? Without a serious commitment to reclaiming our freedom and prosperity, we put ourselves on the path towards becoming a washed-up, has-been civilization, weighed down by an authoritarian boot of our own design. That's very eloquent, and it stings because it's also very on target. All right, moving on. couple other things here. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, we, we talk about experts, you know, follow the experts on this. Have you heard what politicians and media experts are saying regarding the most pressing concern our nation is facing? It isn't out-of-control spending. It isn't military interventionism. It isn't the ongoing loss of freedoms. No, it's the threat of white supremacist extremism. And I have to say this, for people who are constantly railing on, you conspiracy theorists, this is one of the better conspiracy theories floating around out there, and, and it seems to be embraced unquestioningly by an awful lot of people who've been wagging their fingers at, fingers at you tinfoil hat-wearing kooks. I guess they, they don't understand what psychological projection looks like. Alexander Riley has a great article on intellectualtakeout.org, The Creative Expert Invention of Far-Right Terror. And he says, in case you've been lost in the woods and managed not to hear the news, the United States is facing a blood-chillingly scary white supremacist terrorist threat. The, quote, stunning violence of the January 6th riot at the Capitol is perhaps only a prelude of what's to come. For all experts agree, the biggest terrorist threat in America is far-right white supremacists. But he says, how do the ever-reliable experts justify this claim? Well, for starters, it's helpful to define what terrorism is. Violent criminal acts in furtherance of ideological goals stemming from domestic issues, is how Michael McGarrity, former Deputy Assistant Director of FBI Counterterrorism Division, defined it in 2019. Now, that definition isn't limited to violence directly against persons. See, terrorists also target property, a fact demonstrated by the actions of the left anarchist revolutionary Weather Underground. Back in the 1970s, they detonated more than two dozen bombs at police stations, government buildings, and the homes of police officers, judges, and politicians, hurting people and damaging property. Their avowed political goal was to bring the war home and force the American government to withdraw from Vietnam. The terrorist attacks committed by Weather Underground seem oddly similar to the burning, looting, and assaulting done by Black Lives Matter and Antifa revolutionaries throughout 2020. Yet somehow, these acts are not counted as terrorism on the lists compiled by experts. Instead, right-wing terrorism is the major focus of these experts, as evidenced by a report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office. One example picked at random follows. Two white supremacists murdered a 53-year-old African-American man in Eureka, California, on October 4, 2011. Okay, the case involved David Pedersen and Holly Grigsby, who killed four people, starting with the murders of Pedersen's father and stepmother, the former of whom allegedly sexually molested several people in his own family. The couple later killed two more people they encountered, one of whom was the black man. Yet the police gathered little information that lends itself to the interpretation that any of the killings were fundamentally motivated by white supremacy or the desire to further ideological goals. The much more obvious motivating factor was the combination of familial dysfunction and the glaring fact that Pedersen was a violent career criminal, basically unsuited for life outside a prison. Another example included in the report is white supremacist teens beat a Hispanic man to death. Now, this occurred in 2008 in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, when the involved parties got into an alcohol-fueled argument over the trivial kind of matter that ignites physical confrontations in bars on a daily basis. The evidence of the offender's white supremacist beliefs basically consist of the fact that they called the victim a racial epithet during the fight and told him to go back to Mexico. A number of prison murders are also included in the list of white supremacist terror incidents. A white inmate killed his black cellmate in Chipley, Florida in 2006 after numerous violent incidents between the two. Now, there was no evidence of a racial or ideological angle to the killing which seemed rather to simply be the result of two unpleasant, antisocial, and disagreeable people resolving their disagreements through violence. Another prisoner murdered a convicted sex offender, ex-priest. His motivation, according to testimony, was the ex-priest's bragging about his crimes. The murderer, again a white inmate, had at some point in the past indicated involvement in a white nationalist prison gang, and this was enough to place him in the far-right terrorist category. Now, many of these are clearly the mundane violent acts typical of prison without any obvious white, ang- white supremacist angle, rather, to the killings, other than that the white killers had affiliated with white nationalist gangs in prison. Believe it or not, this is a common phenomenon, and black inmates have their own black nationalist gangs. Interestingly, prison killings that involve black or Hispanic offenders and white victims do not count as terrorist attacks in the experts' lists. But let's move beyond incidents. And look at the role time frame plays in these acts of domestic terrorism. It's an established methodology in expert circles that when counting domestic terrorist acts in the U.S., one must always start at some point well after 2001 to ensure that Islamic violence doesn't easily top the list. And it's also important if you want to keep leftist terrorism out of the picture, not to extend the framework back to the roughly 25-year period from the early 60s to the mid-1980s. Doing so would include the massive mountain of leftist bombings, carjackings, and murders of police during that period that frequently ended with injuries and deaths of both public and private individuals. Finally, a recent tactic of the terror experts is to mercilessly distort the definition of right-wing and creatively turn fights between opposing street demonstrators into right-wing terror. Violence between Black Lives Matter and Antifa militants and rioters and and any groups opposed to them, such as the Proud Boys, now frequently counts as examples of right-wing terrorism. So by this logic, the Proud Boys are the authors of quite a few such attacks because of their insistence on showing up at BLM riots and physically confronting rioters or obliging those who show up to fight them at their own rallies fully half of the right-wing terror attacks documented in a Center for Strategic and International Studies report had to do with the targeting of demonstrators. Now, remember, in many cases, these were the same demonstrators who were frequently looting, burning, and assaulting America's cities, but who avoided terrorist classification because of the partisan nature of this game. Are you starting to get the picture? It's like the facts are being cooked. In essence... The American media and governmental effort to understand terror seems to be driven by the skillfully creative efforts of experts to distort reality to get the outcome they want. This is yet another in the growing number of cases in which experts' claims must be modified with scare quotes to actually ac- <laughs> accurately
0: represent their trustworthiness. So says Alexander Riley. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to
1: the show. And again, an invite to uh, swing by thebrianhydeshow.com. Check out the show notes for March 8th. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories that I'm sharing with you. Got two more quick ones that I want to share. These are both gems. And I'm going to start with this uh, one from Larkin Rose. I picked this one up off everythingvoluntary.com. It's titled Hateful Caricatures. And if you've been shaking your head going, why is Dr. Seuss considered a bad thing now, I think you'll like his take. He asks, at what point did cartoon caricatures automatically become hate or offensive? For example, should white gun owners be offended by the character Elmer Fudd? Because, he says, as a white gun owner, I'm not. Cartoons are all about exaggerating characteristics and stereotypes of pretty much everyone and everything. So if I watch The Simpsons, am I supposed to despise and then hate all bald, overweight white guys or yellow guys or whatever? Yes, he says there can be depictions that are intentionally derogatory to a huge category of people. For example, the way U.S. warmongers depicted Germans in general and Japanese people in general was 100% intentionally and maliciously racist, with the obvious goal of creating hatred. Of course, warmongers in every nation do that, some more openly than others. But if Dr. Seuss drew a stereotype caricature of a Chinaman, should I assume that was intended as an insult or the result of hatred? Because I don't. Why is that scene in and of itself as derogatory or insulting? It depicts in cartoonish form a guy with slanted eyes, the symbol-looking hat, and chopsticks. Now this may come as a shock to some, but he says, Chinese people have slanted eyes, and a lot of them used to wear those symbol-looking hats and used chopsticks. How is any of that an insult? It reminds me of people who get offended. If someone white suggests that, hey, black people like fried chicken or watermelon or grape soda, he says, that was a new one to me. How is any of that insulting? Stereotypes aren't automatically malicious. To recognize a pattern, whether it's of physical features or food preferences or something else completely virtue neutral, doesn't magically mean racism or hatred. Now, yes, if someone is actually trying to be insulting, then people can choose to feel insulted or they can choose to ignore it. But the inability to laugh at non-malicious joking, well, that's just sad. Gays can joke about gay stereotypes. Blacks can joke about black stereotypes. Women can joke about women's stereotypes. But it's somehow bad if the same things seem funny to other people, too. Are we, re- are we required to not be able to laugh together at the same things? Well, we, we need to compartmentalize what's funny and only laugh at jokes that our demographic group is allowed to find funny. And to this, he says, the world needs to lighten the crud up. I actually edited that because I won't say the word he used, but he's got a point. With all the actual injustice and violence going on, most of it at the hands of the state, fishing for extra reasons to be triggered and offended is just lame. For example, Blazing Saddles was hilarious, and it used stereotypes to mock bigotry and racism. And it did it brilliantly. When's the last time anyone in Hollywood dared to do something like that? instead of feeding the tension, the division, and the offended waiting to happen agenda. That's a good point. I miss the days when we could laugh at ourselves. And I, I agree. I think it's, it comes down to, you know, we're, we're not allowed to laugh at these things altogether because that would give us some unity. We'd find some common humanity in that. Nope. we got to be strictly divided according to these, you know, uh, these group identity designations. And you can only laugh at what's your identity group is allowed to laugh at. That sounds pretty stupid to me. I don't think I could get on board with that. People are people. And human nature has quirks and funny parts that apply to all of us. I wish we could remember that. All right, one final article. This is from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. When censorship's the game, despotism is the goal. And I like her approach on this because, like I, I mentioned earlier in the show, I, I find myself sometimes looking around and, and censoring myself when engaging in discourse with others. Just because I don't want someone to overhear and feel like, well, I have to speak up and, and be woke, you know, to, to you know, put me in my place. Maybe you're surprised at how often you're doing it, too. But here's how Annie Holmquist puts it. She says, we're only a few months beyond the turn of the calendar, and already I have a candidate for the word of the year. Censorship. Examples are proliferating at such a fast rate that it seems like a game of whack-a-mole just to keep up with all of them. And these are a few of the most recent examples. Number one, censorship of the documentary Created Equal. This was a documentary on the life of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Viewers have been able to watch it on Amazon since last October until it was removed by the big tech company in February. The director of the documentary, Michael Pack, told the Wall Street Journal they were never given a reason for the removal. Many people have complained. Apparently, it's a very popular documentary, but they haven't put it back up. Number two, the censorship of When Harry Became Sally. Released several years ago, Ryan T. Anderson's book on transgenderism suddenly went missing from Amazon's virtual shelves the other week. According to Anderson, leftist media like the New York Times weren't a fan of When Harry Became Sally from the beginning, despite it being an accurate and accessible presentation of the scientific, medical, philosophical, and legal debates surrounding the trans phenomenon. Now, such facts, however, seem not to matter to the censors. It's not about how you say it or how rigorously you argue it or how charitably you present it, writes Anderson. It's about whether you affirm or dissent from the new orthodoxy of gender ideology. And then there's the censorship of Trump's CPAC speech. Last Sunday, President uh, Donald Trump gave a popular speech to individuals gathered at CPAC. News organizations across the country streamed the event and posted it on YouTube for later viewing. Now some of them are paying the price. The speech has been removed from YouTube channels of networks like Fox and ABC, while other news organizations such as Right Side Broadcasting and Alpha News have been temporarily suspended from YouTube for daring to post the speech. As such examples continue to mount, one has to wonder what censors are so scared of that they would want to make such content disappear. And one also wonders if if said censors are thinking very clearly. For the more one censors, the more that censored message will spread and gain favorability. Alexis de Tocqueville noted this principle in his famous work Democracy in America. If you establish a censorship censorship of the press, Tocqueville wrote, the tongue of the public speaker will still make itself heard, and you've only increased the mischief. He goes on to say the powers of thought do not rely like the powers of physical strength upon the number of their mechanical agents, nor can a host of authors be reckoned like the troops which compose an army. On the contrary, the authority of a principle is often expressed by the smallness of the number of men by whom it is expressed is often increased by the smallness of the number of men by whom it's expressed. In other words, those who feel their writings, opinions, and other published works are like David against the Goliath of mainstream media and big tech can actually take heart in such a dire situation, for the more their views are stamped out, the more their ideas spread. Yet Tocqueville concedes there is a way to kill the liberty of the press. The liberty of discourse must be destroyed as well, but those who would do so do it at the risk of bringing the population under the risk of a cruel and authoritarian leader. Tocqueville said the liberty discourse must therefore be destroyed as well as liberty of the press. This is the necessary term of your efforts. But if your object was to repress the abuses of liberty, they brought you to the feet of a despot. You have been led from the extreme of independence to the extreme of subjection without meeting with a single tenable position for shelter or repose. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, but destroying the liberty of discourse and setting up a despot is exactly what the goal seems to be in our current state. And she says, very true. That seeming to be the case. Our mission must then be to encourage liberty of discourse at every turn. Now, that can be a challenge, especially when it seems like one is a lone voice amidst, uh, amidst the cacophony of wokeness that pops out from around every corner. But she asks, can you raise questions? Can you engage in discussion with your friend, neighbor, or relative, discussing ideas that may be uncomfortable or politically incorrect? And here's the key. She says, can you do so not in a mean or demeaning way, but in an an eager and interested fashion? Can you share information on social media through email and other venues, not with the goal of engaging in ad hominem arguments, but in a way which encourages others to think and grow? The fact is, many of us are afraid of even raising sensitive issues, because we're worried such discussions will devolve into heated arguments or maybe even get us canceled. And she says we must get beyond that fear. If we don't, then we will most certainly continue down the path of a suppressed press and suppressed discourse, eventually finding ourselves at the feet of a despot. Now, how does that relate to you and me? Well, I'll tell you, the thing that jumped out at me was the idea of can you share information on social media, through email, and via other venues, not with the goal of engaging in ad hominem arguments, but in a way which encourages others to think and grow. And I don't think Annie Holmquist was trying to do this, but that perfectly describes exactly what I am trying to do every day as I sit behind this microphone. My goal here is to get people to think not necessarily agree with me, but just to think a little more deeply about some of the topics and some of the issues that we are being confronted with. I try to do it in a way that doesn't involve shouted bumper sticker slogans and ultimately leaves the decision up to you as to which way you want to make up your mind.
0: I think we're on to something, but maybe I'm just being naive. This is The Brian Hyde Show.